The How Is This Movie podcast is supported by listeners like you. Go to www.patreon.com slash movie. There you can pledge as little as a dollar a month and help us maintain our goal of keeping this show independent and free of advertising. Hello, everyone, and welcome to How Is This Movie. My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you for taking just a little time out of your day to listen. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at How Is This Movie. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash movie. You can always reach out to me with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave a review on whatever platform you choose to listen. This is the final part of my in-depth look at the business of film. In this episode, with his film The Trouble with the Truth now finished, director Jim Hemphill takes us through the film festival circuit in his search for a distributor for his movie. January 1st, you have a finished copy of trouble with the truth your your, right. mov- your movie has been made right how, how many times did you watch it just just in the, in the few days how many times did you show it to your friends you showed it to some family i mean you had a finished copy what what you do what's the first thing you did probably the first thing i did was took a nap for about a week sure. um <laughs> the and i and i can't remember i don't really know how many times i watched it over that process i mean certainly you watch it a lot in the the sort of mix and color timing stage i mean i certainly saw it a couple of times a day for several days and uh, you know to the point where I, I always used to think it was before i made movies myself i always thought filmmakers were lying when they said they never looked at their movies after the ma- they made yeah. them but then once i did it myself i realized it is not a lie you get so sick of it by the time you are done with it you never want to see it again i mean i mean it's not and it's not saying anything bad about the movie i mean i like the movie and i'm i'm proud of it but you know i i would get sick of uh you know, streetcar named desire. If I watched it four times a day for 12 days, I mean, it's just anything you're going to get, get sick of. So anyway, so once the movie was finished, you know, in my case with this movie, it it then became the long, painful, agonizing process of submitting it to film festivals and waiting to hear from them. And in my case, you know, the first, I you know, the first big ones I submitted it to were, South by Southwest and Tribeca, neither of which did I get into. Well, let, and, let, let, if I can interrupt you just for a moment yeah. here, because I'd like to know about the actual submission process. Right. You, you mentioned you, you, you submitted the film to South by Southwest, Tribeca. Yeah. How does that actually work? Because I imagine well, they get submitted thousands of films, hundreds of films. I mean, is there a, an application yeah. you fill out? I mean, how does that process work? Well, here's how it worked. It worked. Here's how it worked or didn't work for me. First of all, I mean, I was I was coming at this with zero connections to any of these festivals, which I've since learned is it's basically like winning the lottery it, to get into to South by Southwest or Tribeca or Sundance or Cannes, you know, any of those major festivals, which are really the only festivals where you can still achieve that independent film dream of your movie shows at a festival and gets bought by a major distributor and gets a really big release like that, that pretty much only happens at a handful, maybe five or six festivals in the world. And to get into one of those festivals, I mean, what I've since learned is that if you know someone connected with the festival, then you can basically sort of skip over the first couple of levels you have to get past. Um, In other words, when I submitted my movie to those festivals – you go online, generally, for any of these festivals. They have an online application you can fill out with all the information about your movie. You can either send them a DVD or create an online screener for them. And then what happens is your movie gets viewed by 
the bottom tier of programmers. And and I use the term programmer generously. They're not really programmers. <laughs> Basically, all those festivals that get thousands and thousands of submissions, they've got a bunch of people who are either being paid nothing or very close to nothing to watch the stuff that comes through and weed things out bef- before they approve it to get to the next level. And these people, so your your destiny, if you're not connected to the festival in some way or don't know anybody, your destiny is in the hands of somebody who may or may not be the right audience for your movie, who may or may not have similar tastes to you, who may or may not be intelligent. I mean, you know, like, like and you could make a movie, you know, say you make, uh, say you make a sci-fi horror movie, say you make the greatest sci-fi horror movie ever made, but the person who you know, the luck of the draw, your, your movie is being screened by first is someone who hates sci-fi and horror and hates violence or hates special effects or whatever. That person is, your movie is not going to get, make it past that person to the next level. And so if you happen to know someone or even know someone who knows someone who can vouch for you, then you can kind of bypass the bottom couple rungs of the ladder. It doesn't mean your movie is automatically going to get in, but it certainly improves your odds. Um, you know, so in my case, with with with, I didn't have those uh, connections, and and South by Southwest and Tribeca, I didn't get in. So then it became about, well, I'm gonna sort of not be too targeted. I'm just gonna, and I submitted to, I also submitted to Telluride, I think, which is completely even more impossible to get into if you're not connected. I mean, it, I mean, Telluride, most of the movies are either coming from things that have already shown at Cannes or the Fox Searchlight or Sony Classics movies or whatever. But anyway, so I submitted to a few of those huge festivals. And then it was like, okay, well, I didn't get into those, so I'm going to submit to um, the sort of second tier you know, fe- festivals and submit to and, – and, and just really be a lot – be not even that discriminating, just submit to as many festivals as I could. And so – you know, which uh, you as you're doing that, it there's there are, for most of them there are submission fees, which rack up really fast. You're you're basically talking spending between thirty and ninety bucks every time you want to submit to a festival. So you do have to target them a little bit, unless you're just independently wealthy or something. You can't afford to submit to everything. The good news is, and this is jumping ahead a little bit, but the good news is once you've gotten into a few, then sometimes. Other festivals, if you get into a few and you get good reviews and things, then other festivals will start coming to you wanting to see your movie. And then you don't have to pay the submission fee. You can just send them a link to your movie or a DVD and they'll watch it for free. And then, and, and, and you're also bypassing that process with those festivals of having to be watched by the low people on the ladder. So anyway, so I submitted to a number of, of other festivals. And the first one we got into was the Boston Film Festival, which was actually a great festival um you know they flew john shay and leah thompson and i out there and put us up in a hotel and uh showed the movie in a really nice theater and all that and it was kind of a nice way for the movie to screen you know the thing about festivals like that is and basically all the festivals we showed in um they were great festivals in terms of seeing the movie with an audience seeing that it worked for people getting the word out a little bit but they don't really those fest again. If you're not at Sundance, South by Southwest, Tribeca, a couple others, they don't do a whole lot for you as far as getting distributors interested or anything like that. I mean, it was, I would say, you know, we the first festival screening of the movie was 
September 2011 at the Boston Film Festival. And I don't think we got a distributor for the movie until the beginning of 2000 or I guess late 2013 or something. So it was like a two year process of going around those festivals until we finally found somebody to distribute it. And ironically, it ended up being the same distributor that distributed my first horror movie. So I really, so really it had nothing to do with any of those festivals like that. Well, let me ask you this now, are there any, any red flags, uh, you know, a, a filmmaker could, should look out for when submitting to a film festival? Is there anything you mentioned the second tier film festivals? Yeah. And there are tiers below those. Oh, for sure. So, yeah. so, and I'm, I'm always wondering, I'm always curious if there's like, you know, some guys say one day says, you know what? I want to put on a film festival and he creates a website. And I'm just, right. I'm just wondering if there's any, any advice you'd give to somebody to, to say, you know, look, you should be cautious about putting this film out, putting your film out to this film festival? Or did you have any experiences like that? Or are there any red flags that you, you, you've you seen? Well, you know, I have to say, I was, I've was i never, with either of my movies, I've never had the movies play at film festivals I regretted having them play at, or even that I regretted going to, because, and, and I haven't run into that experience yet of, I, I haven't, gotten into any where I've shown up and it turned out it was just a guy in his basement or something like, you know, they've all at least had a few people there to actually see the movie. And, and my attitude nowadays is anytime you can get anybody to watch your movie, it's a good thing and you should go for it because I think it is so hard to get people to see stuff. I mean, I think this whole digital revolution, the, as I think we've discussed before, the great thing about it is it makes it a lot easier for anybody to make a movie. The bad thing about that, if you are a filmmaker, is to be heard and seen uh, is a lot more difficult because there are so many thousands of people making movies every year. And so if you can get your movie in front of anybody, I'm happy. You know, I, I had my movie played at a film festival in, uh, you know, Clear Lake, Iowa, which is a small town um that, you know, it was like a small town film festival where the movies were basically playing in like a, I, I get, I, it wasn't really a library, but it was something like that. And, you know, the thing about that, like, I, you know, the, one of the screenings our movie had, I mean, there were probably only 15 people in the audience, but one of the guys in that audience after the movie was over came up to me sobbing uncontrollably. I mean, like the movie, like it was the most emotional reaction I, I saw the movie get from anybody. And honestly, for me as a filmmaker, when it is so hard to get anybody to watch your stuff, you know, I was glad I brought the movie to that festival just for that guy, yeah. just cause that guy saw it, you know? Um, so I'm, and I'm kind of, of, you know, I think here's here's my feeling about it is I think that you you I think it, you have to be a little bit strategic about where your movie shows first. I mean, I think you have to go for those big festivals first. You have to try to get your movie to premiere at a South by Southwest or a Sundance, you know, where it's going to get the make get the biggest amount of attention. Um, but once it has shown at one of those places or if you're like me and you don't get into one of those places, then my attitude is just carpet bomb the country or the world with your movie. Like show it everywhere you possibly can show it because nowadays if you're an independent filmmaker, that's your theatrical release. Probably. I mean, it's, it's, it's again, it is really not easy. The number for all the number of screens that are out there, you know, the, the digital revolution in exhibition has not led to, an increase in independent films showing in theaters. It's exactly the opposite. All it means is that it's easier 
for every theater to add three more screens of Deadpool if it's doing well. They're not gonna they're not gonna give those screens to you know a new Damon Packard movie or Hal Hartley movie or Abel Ferrara movie. They're gonna give the extra screens. I mean, when Force Awakens opened by, by the theater that's a few blocks from my house had the Force Awakens playing. It's it's a fifteen screen theater. Every single screen had Force Awakens for the first couple of days. So that's what that's what's going to happen. So so basically you're not unless you are one of those lucky few who gets plucked out of Sundance by Fox Searchlight and you get that theatrical release, your theatrical release, the only time your movie is going to show with audiences, you know, in a communal setting is going to be film festival. So I say go for it and don't have a snobbery about, you know, how big the festival is, how big the town is it's playing in. You know, because the other interesting thing is some of these towns that the movie, you know, I actually found that my movie, it was great to get those reactions from people who aren't film buffs, who are just going because it's like it's a film festival in their town, that that's an exciting thing. And they're they're more casual moviegoers. But in a way, you get a, you're getting this pure response from them to your movie that you don't get necessarily at some place like Sundance or South by Southwest because it's sort of a more, I, I don't want to use the word jaded, but it's people who come in with a whole lot of other assumptions um, that you have to get past. So I don't know. I'm a big believer in going for as much as possible. I mean, I do, I have heard stories that, you know, there are people, there are people who in a way there, I'm sure there are people who are sort of unscrupulous who, are collecting these film festival submission fees on their website or something and don't have legit festivals. Uh, but I don't, I don't know how, I don't know how you avoid that. I don't know how you, you know, I'm sure you can research it and sort of try to avoid those people. But, um, but yeah, really beyond people like that, I think it's good to just show it as much as you can show it. And you know, you never know what's going to come out of any film festival because my first movie, Bad Reputation film festival that had the fewest people in the audience was the one we got our distributor out of. You know, we showed it at a film festival in Delray Beach, Florida, which, you know, is a town like something out of the movie Cocoon. I mean, it is, the median age is like 85 years old. And so my movie, you know, my Bad Reputation, which is this down and dirty teen exploitation slasher movie, basically, shows at this film festival, and I walk in, and there's six people in the theater, um, all of whom are, you know, well, well over 75 years old, uh, except for one. And, you know, they're, they're just, and three of them walk out in the middle of the movie. And when these three people walk out, you know, they're walking out because they literally had walkers. So it takes, <laughs> it takes them a long time to get out of the theater. So it was really painful to sit and watch them, them leave en masse. Um, however, so I'm sitting there in the theater thinking, well, this was really not a festival that was worth my time coming to. However, the one person in the theater who was under the age of 75 and who liked the movie happened to work for, uh, this company Maverick that was a film distribution company. And they ended up distributing that movie and getting it into all the blockbusters and stuff back when there were blockbusters. And so, so, you know, the, the, even the festival that I thought initially was the biggest waste of time for me to have sent my movie to and for me to have gone to uh, that was the one that got me my distributor so you never know it's just good to kind of get it out in front of as many people as possible let's talk about distribution here just for a moment let's talk talk to me about how trouble with the truth got its distribution 
And then what options are on the table when a distribution company wants to pick up the rights or buy the film? Or, or I mean, how is that done? Is there a specific time period that they hold the rights to? Do you no longer own the movie that you spent years putting together? How does all that work? In my case, with both of the movies that I did, it was a case of licensing the movie for a certain period of time. Now, if you do sell to a place like a Fox Searchlight or a Sony Classics or something like that, I think in those cases, they kind of buy it outright. Like, they want it forever. You know, they want it to be in their library and and um, to be able to exploit it on whatever future media. You know, 30 years from now, when we're all watching movies on a chip that's been implanted into our brain, you know, Fox, 20th Century Fox wants to own your movie to be able to do that with. Yeah. So if you sell it to a big studio or something, you're probably going to – you're probably just selling it over forever. I mean, the, the plus side is you're getting, you know – probably a decent amount of money and certainly a ton of exposure for that. So, um, but in the case of my movie, you know, and again, my, my movie is sort of a case where, you know, I didn't have these, all the options in the world, but the options I did have, and, 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 you know, it was a, it was a real learning curve for me because going into trouble with the truth, I think I was still, my head was still in a kind of 1990s model because I grew up again on, the, you know, I grew up on the world of home video and when people were renting movies on VHS and then DVD and all that. And I grew up on this idea that you made an independent film, you took it to a festival, Harvey Weinstein bought it and it comes out everywhere and you make a bunch of money. Um, and that just doesn't exist anymore except for, for a very, very, very few people. And the, the the climate now is it's kind of the wild west. I mean, you just I, I still don't think it's shaken out to a point where filmmakers or even the distributors themselves completely understand where everything is going to go. Because basically with my movie, what I was looking for, like the first the first few people who showed interest in the movie, we we basically had I guess I would say there were three companies that were interested in the movie. And one of them was Maverick who ended up distributing it. And they, they were a company I had been, you know, dealt with before they had done bad reputation and done a, a, I thought a very good job with that movie Um, because bad reputation was, you know, movie made for 10 cents and basically looked like a glorified home movie. And they, they managed to get it into all the blockbusters and uh, you know, did, did a really nice job with it. Um, So, they were one of the people that was interested in it. And then there were two other uh, companies that we were talking to. One was a company called phase four, which had distributed another movie of Leah's. That was sort of how we got in with them. And then another company called Cynodyne. And, you know, here's the thing uh, in, in hindsight, it's always 2020. And in retrospect, I, the movie might've gotten, not might have, it, it, I'm almost positive. It would have gotten, more viewers under Cinedime or phase four. But the mistake I made, and again, this is my nineties thinking basically Cinedime and phase four were only interested in distributing it digitally. They did literally no physical media. Like they didn't want to make DVDs or Blu-rays. They just wanted it to be iTunes, VOD, Netflix, Amazon, you know, all the streaming and download models basically. And Maverick was the only company that was willing to put it out on DVD. And that was Kind of that was a big deal to me, but I think what I wasn't taking into account was the fact that it's not a big deal to most people. Like I still really like physical media. I like watching movies on DVD and Blu-ray. I have a huge, you know, I have a collection of uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of, of uh, 
gosh, I don't even know how many thousands of DVDs I've got, but a lot. You know, so I still was under this way of thinking it's it, that, that, you know, it's important to have a DVD and Blu-ray release. And um, so so that was kind of why I ended up going with Maverick. And Maverick, you know, are they're a good they were great for Bad Reputation because that was a period when it was still the kind of retail video store model. Um, and that's what Maverick was great at. Um, but the times have kind of changed. And, you know, the fact is the DVDs of Trouble with the Truth, you know, if you can't get your DVDs into Redbox, which I know Maverick tried and Redbox just wasn't interested, if you can't get it into Redbox and Walmart, there's almost no point in making DVDs because it's just, they just, there are places that sell them. People don't buy them. People don't rent them. They just, you know, they, they watch everything on the streaming models and everything. And so probably in retrospect, I should have gone with somebody like Cinedyme, which is very much a 21st century company and is very robust in terms of knowing how to get it on Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and all those streaming models. And I, I kind of ended up in this world where the distributor I had, you know, they did, they did believe me, they did what they could with the DVD and they got it into all the Barnes and Nobles, which was a big deal. You know, they've, they've, they, they did a certain, got us on a certain number of the VOD platforms and everything, but you know, we're not on Netflix yet. We're not on Hulu. We're not on Amazon prime. I still feel like, I feel like there's a huge audience for this movie that can't really get to it yet. And which is a little bit frustrating for me. And I don't really know what this necessarily teaches people, except that I, cause again, by the time somebody, somebody who starts making a movie today, by the time they're ready to get a distributor, all this stuff will have changed even more. Yeah. And, and it's it's really a tricky thing to know the right thing. I mean, one one mistake I think I made big time on this movie was I also ha- was 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 not seeking those distribution um, outlets earlier than I did because again I was going with this '90s thinking of like, well, I'm just going to play it at film festivals, and out of one of these film festivals, somebody's going to want to buy the movie, and that isn't exactly what happened, and. What I would have been better served by approaching these companies, whether Maverick or whoever ended up distributing it, you know, I mean, Maverick was my, again, I had this prior relationship with them with Bad, for Bad Reputation. We could have talked about them distributing it two years earlier than, than I did. And had I done that, you know, the movie could have been available on DVD and VOD and streaming while I was running it around all of these festivals. Now, some festivals won't play it if it's available, but so, like certainly the bigger tier ones, but a lot of these second and third and fourth tier festivals, they don't have, a, you can play it at the festivals, even if it's available online or whatever. And so I think I missed out on a big opportunity because I think that while the movie was playing at these festivals, if it had been available, the people who were enjoying it, at the festivals, you know, they could have then bought the DVD or they could have told their friends about it and their friends would have had a way to see it. Instead, what happened was, by the time the movie actually came out, any word of mouth it had off of the festival and theatrical run had long since dissipated. Because, you know, as you know, people have short attention spans and there's so much stuff now competing for everyone's attention that even though the movie got a great response every time at every festival it showed, um, you know, even if somebody comes out of a film festival screening in 2012 and tells all their friends, oh, when this movie Trouble with the Truth comes out, you got to see it. It's so fantastic. Then when the movie comes out in 2014, nobody is going to remember that movie. I mean, I go to movies and watch movies all the time. I live and breathe movies. It's my life. And I forget about movies sometimes. If a movie comes out in the theater and I miss it while it's in the theater, I'll forget about it. And then like 
two or three years later, I'll be like, oh, it'll pop up on Netflix. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's something I really wanted to see. And, you know, it's just it's it's very, very this is something I think that is really difficult for independent filmmakers to figure out. And I'm still figuring it out. But I think there's I think you have to be more calculated than I was about really coming up with a plan of how you're going to get the most people to see your movie and, you know, also, what do you want out of your movie in terms of is the idea that you want it to do you want to make its money back? Do you want it to is it more about the movie being a, a calling card for you to get jobs and things like that? Because the getting your money back is a whole other thing, because nowadays most movies, you know, and again, unless you have one of those big festival sales, uh, you're not necessarily getting money up front. It's you're getting a cut of the movie from the distributor, and that cut, the, that money that's coming in, is getting smaller and smaller every year because of, uh, you know, net places like Netflix. You know, again, it's it's like the whole digital. It's like the the pros and cons of the whole digital revolution being that you can that make movies more easily, but it's harder for people to see them. You know, with Netflix, if you do get your movie on Netflix. The good news is you can get more people to see it, but you're make if you're an independent filmmaker, you're not making any money. Like Netflix is spending all their money to give, you know, tens of millions of dollars to the producers of the Blacklist or, uh, you know, CSI Cyber or whatever to be able to stream those movies on there. You know, that's where all their money is being, or towards their original programming like House of Cards and things like that. But you know, Netflix doesn't. You know, the, as a consumer, I love. Netflix. But as a filmmaker, I absolutely hate it because it is completely devalued movies in consumers' mind. People have gotten used to this idea that they think if they pay $7.99 a month, that entitles them to all the entertainment in the world unlimited. And that's just not a sustainable model for filmmaking. I mean, I, I think, you know, what they don't, and, and, and the thing about for like somebody like me, because my movie isn't on Netflix, I think there's a lot of people who don't, they're not going to pay. Two ninety nine to rent it on iTunes or on Amazon Instant because their attitude is, oh well, I'll just wait for it to get on Netflix, yeah. and it may or may, and it may or may not get to Netflix. But I think most people have that attitude now about everything. They're like, well, I'll wait for it to get to Netflix. And the problem with the waiting to get to Netflix thing is seven ninety nine a month for all the entertainment in the world just is 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 just ultimately something that you can't pay for movies that way. I mean, it's you know unless you're making your movies for really next to nothing and you can do that but it's it's then you get into a realm where you know it's why it's why so many movies you know my own included take place in a couple of rooms now it's because you have to make them so cheap to have any chance whatsoever of getting your money back and you know even there even you know trouble with the truth we you know my investors have not you know they haven't gotten their money back yet for it so uh, hopefully they will, but it's, it's a very, it's a really, I don't know if, again, I don't know if I'm sort of answering any of your questions oh, really, no, but it's, no, no. Be, it's because I'm, I'm as, you know, kind of in the dark about a lot of it as anybody is. Well, I, I, I do have a question that you should hope you'd be able to answer this one. Um, <clears throat> how long does Maverick hold the rights to troubled with the truth? Uh, five years, basically they, they, that was the deal with them, um, was that they would have for five years, they've got the all the domestic they've got like the north american uh all the north american rights for it you know um for digital dvd whatever uh and then in, yeah five years after that was signed 
it's in 2000, the beginning of 2019 or something like that, it comes back to me. Uh, and then I can either, I could either renew my deal with them or I can look for another distributor or, you know, my thought by 2019 is that I will probably, you know, nowadays, you know, everything is move, I, I moving towards, you can almost distribute it yourself, um, using these, you know, there are different aggregators like distributor and things like that, where, you know, that for a cut of it, they'll put your movie on iTunes and Netflix and Amazon instant and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I don't know how the indie, some of these indie distributors, I don't know if there's really going to be a place for them anymore, uh, as all that shakes out, you know, Maverick, their whole model was built on, retail video stores they did they used to do great when they could get a couple copies of all their movies into blockbuster and hollywood video and and things like that but again now it's pretty much just redbox and walmart and walmart is a really kind of lousy place for independent filmmakers because because they've cornered the market they make these punishing deals with independent distributors where they will they will put your movie in their stores but if it doesn't sell, you know, they return the cop, they return everything to you and don't pay for it. Okay. So you have to kind of risk to, 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 to get it into Walmart. You have to risk making a certain number of DVDs. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a tricky situation because Walmart, they will demand a certain number of DVDs. So you have to do, go through that manufacturing cost. They will demand that number of DVDs, but with no promise that they're actually going to pay you for them. Because if they don't sell them all in their stores, they send them back to you. So it's it's kind of a bad. It's 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 not not a good situation for uh, for indie filmmakers. Well, in, you know, it's interesting that the, the last question I have, I think you've already actually already answered it. You know, is how was you know how was the impact of VOD and online streaming changed things? Uh, I think you clearly just answered that. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, I mean, it, it's definitely, I don't know. And again, I don't know how things will, will shake out. I mean, I think it's just, it, it, you know, because I, I, I also, I don't know how Netflix and Amazon and Hulu, I don't know how all that's going to change the independent film business because Netflix and Amazon and Hulu right now are just, they are spending so much money on both original content and then on buying, they are buying like, Amazon is kind of the one place that is paying tons of money at film festivals for independent films. Now, the independent films they're buying are generally things that are by pretty established filmmakers and that already have big stars and things like that. Um, But I don't know, you know, these companies can't spend this kind of money forever because they're just not going to make it back. And I don't know what's, I I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Let me ask you this, giving everything that you just said here, you know, talking about yeah. how 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 much the landscape has changed since, you know, you, you're literally since since you, you know the the first film that you made. How much mm-hmm. the landscape has changed. You're not discouraged from moving forward, make and, and continuing to make movies, are you? Uh, <laughs> well, um, here's the thing. I mean, I have sort of a new, I I mine I'm a new plan in mind for it, which is basically, I am discouraged from the idea of ever making a living, making independent films. I mean, I really just think that's, I, I, you can do it, but boy, is it tough. Um, you know, so my thing now, I, I, you know, you know, I got, the, the thing that's come, one of the things that has come out of trouble with the truth, even though I, the movie hasn't been that widely seen, you know, it, it got me some, a handful of really good reviews and, you know, some, from you and other people and using those reviews as a kind of 
way of pushing open the door. You know, I got the movie in front of some people in network TV. And right now my goal is to basically pay the rent directing TV. There are a couple of things on the horizon that I don't want to go into specifics because I'm completely superstitious about jinxing things. But if all goes according to plan, I'm going to be directing some network TV later this year, which is a way you can make a living as a director, you know, TV. And, and there's actually, unlike the film world, you know, TV is just exploding with jobs because of all these different networks and, uh, and, and streaming services. They're all looking to produce their own original shows and things like that. So my game plan as an independent filmmaker, my sort of survival plan is basically, I've kind of given up on the idea that like, I'm going to make money making independent films. The, the idea is I'll make my money directing TV and sock some away every time, every, you know, and you know, maybe every couple of years, hopefully continue to, when I'm, not directing TV, continue to make my own independent films. And they will, you know, the pressure without the pressure of, Oh, this has to make a profit or even make its money back, you know, just sort of like in a way the TV stuff will fund my passion projects. And that's kind of my game plan. And a lot of people do stuff like that. You know, there are a lot of independent filmmakers who they either do commercials or music videos or industrial things, or they, you know, the, the, very few independent filmmakers these days, I feel like, actually only do independent films. I mean, there are some, and there are some like Joe Swanberg who have managed to sort of create a model where they, they just make so many of them um, that they kind of have a constant income stream going, and they've got enough of a name that they can do it. But, you know, a lot of independent filmmakers now, that's that's one of a couple different jobs they have. And so for me, my, new, my sort of sort of my master plan now going forward is to uh, direct TV and direct my own independent films kind of on the side. You know, TV will be my day job and the independent films will be what I do for love. I got to tell you, I think that's really, really exciting. Um, I'd love to do the very first episode of How Is This TV Show? And uh, Will do. And, I will, I'll, you'll yeah. be the first to know. Yeah, you got to let me know. And then uh, I, I'd, I'd be so interested in hearing about what the world of uh, directing television is like. So I'm, I'm really pulling for you. I'm sure all the listeners are absolutely pulling for you. So, Jim, I have to tell you right now, like, I knew this was going to be a good conversation, but to me, I'm going to define this one as an eye-opening conversation. And I really, I really feel like I learned a lot more than I thought I was going to learn. If that makes any sense, like I mm-hmm. was, like I thought I had a firm idea of where this conversation was go, but you really sort of uh, really broadened things for me, and I really appreciate that. And I know the listeners are really going to appreciate that. So thank you so much for coming on the show again. Um, as always, if people want to follow you on Twitter, they can follow you at Jimmy Hemphill. Yep. I've, I've got that memorized now. <laughs> and and um, your website is jimhemphillfilms.com? That's right. All right. Perfect. So what's the most recent interview you did for Filmmaker Magazine? I actually just interviewed Francis Lawrence about directing the Hunger Games movies. And so I posted an interview with him about kind of what it's like being at the helm of one of the biggest franchises of all time. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I uh, encourage everyone to definitely check that out. So, Jim, listen, have a good afternoon. Thank you so much for being on the show, and uh, I'm sure we're going to have you back really soon. Thank you. Thank you for having me, as always. Absolutely. Once again, I need to take a moment and thank both Phil Juano and Jim Hemphill for taking time out of their incredibly busy schedules to help us learn more about the ever-changing landscape of filmmaking. My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.